Okay, Peter. We'll start with uh, the first question. What do you mean by apologetics in 3D? By apologetics in 3D, I'm talking about uh, my attempt to give a, a definition of what apologetics is uh, that's perhaps more sort of rounded or holistic in nature uh, than many definitions of apologetics that you'll come across. Uh, and I end up with a, a definition um, that has uh, three parts to it, each of which contains three concepts. So you end up at the, the end of looking through uh, this definition with a, a nice three-by-three three grid diagram um, of various concepts and how they relate to each other um, that I think provides uh, a really nice launch pad uh, at the back of the, the apologist's mind, as it were, uh, for uh, keeping a rounded, holistic, um, whole gospel delivered to the whole person kind of perspective on apologetics. Um, if I could just read out the, the definition at the beginning here, I'll do it for my uh, lecture outline to make sure I get it right as well. I say that apologetics is the art of persuasively advocating Christian spirituality across spiritualities as being objectively true and good and beautiful and doing that through the responsible use of rhetoric and uh, classical rhetoric has three elements to it as well hence you end up with this three by three apologetics in 3D definition of apologetics so the first uh, big concept here is really spirituality, and I give a, a general definition of spirituality, uh, which is about the structure of what a spirituality is, uh, which says that different spiritualities will put different content into that structure, but all spiritualities, whether it's Christian spirituality or Buddhist spirituality or atheist spirituality, will have the same general structure. Uh, and really, I, I got this from Jesus, because in his answer to the question about the greatest command, he refers to loving the Lord your God with all of your heart and all of your mind and all of your strength. Uh, and although he's obviously putting a, a particular content into a structure there, I think that general structure of heart and mind and strength, of what you believe about reality, your worldview, the attitude and commitments of your heart towards what you believe to be true, together leading you organically to behaving and acting in certain ways that characterise that, that way of life. Um, so a spirituality is a, a way of relating to reality through your beliefs about it, your attitudes towards it, and how that leads you to act in the world. What about Christian spirituality? So uh, a Christian spirituality uh, puts a particular content into that general structure of spirituality. And again, you could refer back to Jesus' answer to the greatest command. And I would say Christian spirituality is to love God with all of yourself, with all of your mind, your beliefs, your attitudes, your actions in the world, and to love your neighbour as yourself. Uh, the additional thing that you, you have to mention for Christian spirituality is that according to Jesus, the way into that, that way of relating to reality, the way into that form of life, is through Jesus himself. And Jesus refers to himself as the gate. I'm, I'm the gate. Uh, 
no one comes to the Father except through me. So Jesus is the, the embodied, incarnate, divine access point into the way of life of Christian spirituality through um, a forgiven relationship with God, whom you respond to with your whole self, including your worldview, your attitudes, your actions, and that, of course, leads to loving your, yourself and loving your neighbour as yourself. How would you define a worldview? So the concept of a worldview is obviously subsumed within what I'm talking about as a spirituality. And different uh, scholars will define worldview in slightly different ways, either a sort of narrower or broader way. Uh, In particular, uh, James W. Sire, in his book, The Universe Next Door, um, that book's gone through a number of different editions, and as it's done so, Sire's definition of a worldview has uh, undergone somewhat of a shift. So originally, Sire defined a worldview as the set of one's basic answers to the big questions about reality. So it was a very sort of intellectual definition of a worldview. And in later editions, he expanded that to talk about worldviews as both a matter of the mind and of the heart, of one's commitment to a certain way of life or or way of viewing things. Um, Now... I think that that expansion of the definition captures something important, but it also makes the term worldview more sort of ambiguous because it covers a a wider variety of things. So I prefer to use worldview in in the the sort of narrower intellectual sense, the sort of philosophical sense, and then build that in at the ground level of a spirituality as I talk about it, and then go on to add the important stuff about heart, that Sire uses in, in his wider definition of, of worldview. But then I'm also adding another element, which is that your beliefs and your attitudes together tend to lead you to behaving in certain ways. What are the transcendental values that must be brought into apologetics? So, having looked at the, the concept of spirituality and Christian spirituality in, in apologetics, what we're asking uh, people to do is not simply change a, a set of beliefs, but change a whole way of life to, to swap their non-Christian spirituality for a Christian Christ-centred spirituality. Uh, and the second uh, element to my definition refers to these uh, transcendental values. Now, this is nothing to do with um, transcendental meditation, uh, as you might think of in the context of spirituality. Uh, rather, this is a term drawn from medieval scholastic philosophy, where they're talking about values uh, against which we judge everything and anything in life. So they transcend the categories that we might divide things up into studying different fields at a university. And all of those fields will use the values of of truth or falsity, goodness or evil, beauty or ugliness. And these are general categories of things that are worth valuing by which we judge things. So the, the three transcendental values are truth, goodness and beauty. How are we to understand how these values relate to our role as apologists? So with these uh, transcendental objective values of truth and goodness and beauty uh, in the back of our minds, I think there's really two things that a Christian apologist needs to, to focus on and bear in mind. The one is that when uh, judging 
any spirituality, whether it's Christian or non-Christian, one wants to hold that spirituality to account by these three values. So obviously, um, the beliefs of a worldview should be held to account by whether or not they're true. Uh, the actions of a worldview uh, that it typically would lead you to embrace should be judged by whether or not they're good. And the, the attitudes of the heart involved, that would relate to beauty through the concept of beauty of character. The, the kind of use of the term beauty when we say, oh, oh, she's a beautiful person, or we say beauty is more than skin deep. Um, so we, we hold spiritualities at, at the three different levels accountable to those three different transcendental values. Um, but that's a sort of external judging matter but we also, I think, as apologists, should bear in mind that, that we as Christians are called upon to embody or incarnate, if you like, God's character, to put on the character of Christ, and that these values of, of truth and goodness and beauty are rooted in God's very essence. Um, Christ d- describes himself as the good shepherd. And actually, the Greek term that's being translated into the English good there is the Greek word kalos, which actually was a sort of compound concept of the beautiful good. So Christ says, I am the beautiful good shepherd. And we, we lose some of that breadth of, of meaning in the in English translation. But if we are to put on the character of Christ, we as apologists should try and be beautiful good people interested in incarnating uh, truth um, so that we better follow um, a command like 1 Peter 3.15, which talks about always be ready to, to give an answer, an apologia, uh, a defence, a reason for the hope that you have. And then Peter says, do this with gentleness and respect. And it talks about the attitude, the character with which the apologist should act, as well as the, the rationality that they should communicate with. What is rhetoric? Rhetoric is a a subject that's got a bad name these days and we tend to associate it with, say, a a politician doing a a speech and they would perhaps be criticised as just using rhetoric. Um, Well, that's uh, bad rhetoric, perhaps, but there is such a thing as as good rhetoric uh, that the classical world was very interested in and I think that uh, you can see very clearly in the Bible someone like St Paul is very interested in as well. Um, The classical fountainhead of thinking about rhetoric is Aristotle, uh, the philosopher Aristotle in his book on rhetoric. And let me just read Aristotle's definition of, of rhetoric for you. He says, rhetoric is the power to observe the persuasiveness of which any particular matter admits. So again, it's an objective matter. It's not like trying to pull the wool over people's eyes and persuade them to buy a car, even if it's not really a very good one, by um, producing some advert where you um, drape a girl in a bikini over the bonnet of the car and use exciting music to sway people's emotions. Rather, it would be a matter of looking at the car, saying, is there anything that's really good or beautiful about this car? How can I best get the the audience to notice what is good about this car, what is persuasive about the matter, and then to communicate that really well to the whole person. And that's uh, rhetoric in the the good original classical sense. What are the elements of rhetoric? 
so rhetoric in this uh, original classical sense has three elements, and Aristotle uh, talks about um, ethos, pathos, and logos. Uh, Greek terms for the three different elements uh, of rhetoric, and it would be perhaps good to unpack uh, each of those uh, in turn. Uh, So ethos refers to the character of the presenter, of the one who's who's trying to persuade. Um, Do they come across as the stereotypical used car salesman, that you wouldn't trust as far as you could throw them? Or do they come across as someone who knows what they're talking about, is walking the walk as well as talking the talk, things like that? Uh, Pathos is to do with engaging people at more than a purely dry intellectual level, at engaging the whole person, engaging the heart. Um, it, It includes... The emotions, getting the emotions involved, but it's it's a bit broader and deeper than that. Uh, Emotions are tied to our our attitudes, our affections towards things. Um, And so it's a matter of of trying to help the audience to get into a place where they can see what is uh, affective about a particular matter. And the third uh, element of classical rhetoric is logos. Logos is a term that many Christians will be familiar with from St. John's use of it at the beginning of his gospel, where when we translate it into the English as, as word, and John says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Well, the word translated as word there is, is the Greek logos. It was a term from Greek stoical philosophy that kind of meant something like Uh, the rationality behind the universe, the sort of thing that Stephen Hawking uh, metaphorically talks about as uh, the mind of God, when in a brief history of time he says if we we finally have a theory of everything in science then we'll know the mind of God. But John takes that that term from Greek philosophy and says yes there is a, a rationality behind the universe but that rationality has revealed itself in person, in the person of Christ, and we've seen him full of grace and and truth. Um, So that's where the the term uh, comes from, and Aristotle uses that term uh, to talk about the the argument, the proof, the rational element uh, of uh, persuasion. And so uh, persuasiveness has uh, more than rationality, but should always include rationality. Uh, It's no good really well uh, communicating and engaging the audience's hearts if there's nothing uh, that's true about what you're pointing them towards or that's uh, rationally uh, grounding what you're saying. But equally, uh, simply giving people um, rational reasons to believe things if you don't do it in in a way that engages them or that reveals that you're talking about something more than simply offering them a philosophy in apologetics, because we're not. Um, there are things that Christians believe are true, are facts about the universe that, that we know that have been revealed. Christianity is a knowledge tradition, as uh, American philosopher J.P. Moreland puts it. But it is more than that as well. It is a, a whole holistic way of life centred upon Christ. What is the distinction between good and bad rhetoric? So it is important to draw a distinction between good rhetoric and and bad rhetoric. And good rhetoric 
is rhetoric that's rooted in uh, objective observations of what is persuasive at these different levels about a subject area, uh, and that uh, uses uh, a rounded communication approach to help people to notice for themselves what is persuasive about something. So good rhetoric is the use of uh, logos and pathos and ethos to help people to see what is true, what is beautiful, what is good about something. Um, Bad rhetoric would be rhetoric that comes adrift uh, from those objective values and that objective intent and simply becomes a matter of Uh, of persuasion at any cost, or um, becoming adept at getting people to believe what you want them to believe without being concerned about are you intending to help people to see what you believe sincerely to be true and good and beautiful. So when St Paul goes to uh, Corinth and they have a, a whole sort of sophistic rhetorical culture there where the entertainment of the day was a new speaker or philosopher comes into town and everybody gathers to listen to him and they give him a topic and he has to sort of extemporize and defend a viewpoint on on a topic but not being concerned to actually say well this is what I really think is true and good and beautiful but here's how clever I am I can just off the cuff come up with a case for anything It's just an intellectual game. And Paul is very clearly against that. He says, when I came to you, you I was determined to know Christ only. I only have one subject that I'm interested in talking about, and I want to talk to you about it objectively. It's something that I sincerely believe, and I'm giving you objective reasons to to come to believe as well. Um, So Paul was against bad rhetoric, but very clearly uh, pro-good rhetoric as well. Um, For example, when Paul uh, says, uh, always make good use of the time when you're with unbelievers. Um, Be pleasant, have good ethos. Hold their interest, have good pathos. And choose your words carefully and always be ready to give reasons, to give answers for the hope that you have. Um, Singing off the same hymn sheet as, as Peter there at the end. Um, He lists the same three elements of classical rhetoric that that Aristotle does in the same order that Aristotle does, using the same concept. He doesn't use exactly the same terminology, but I think he's clearly referring to the same thing. So, good rhetoric, yes. Bad rhetoric, no. In apologetics, how do we sometimes impoverish the gospel? Mm. The reason that I am so uh, excited about this definition of apologetics, and you may think, you know, gosh, only a philosopher could get excited about defining something. But I think it really is exciting because once you've grasped this grid of concepts, uh, it really helps mitigate against impoverishing the gospel, which is something that I, I think people intuitively feel some apologetics at least, has done by too narrowly focusing upon matters of the intellect, of matters of logos, and uh, can sometimes seem to kind of present the Christian view of things as presenting a philosophy to people. uh, Come and sign up to this different statement of belief or whatever. 
And while I want to say that, yes, that is in, clearly involved and is clearly very important and biblical to do, there is a broader picture here, uh, a more holistic picture here, um, that uh, I think this definition of apologetics in 3D helps us to, to bear in mind and, and not come adrift from the kind of persuasive evangelism apologetics that uh, Jesus himself and his disciples and St Paul uh, were themselves engaged in if you look through the pages of the Gospels and Acts. Beautiful. Thank you very much. Thank you.